thank you for joining us at the bar for another spirited conversation about the issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Berseris with Independent Women's Law Center, and I'm joined by my colleague, Inez Stepman, with Independent Women's Forum. So today we're drilling down on some of the hot cases that are being heard by the United States Supreme Court this term. Um, and with us, it's kind of an all IW docket today um, with our fine fellows, our legal fellows, Aaron Hawley and Maya Nohara. No, Hona. I'm going to butcher that every time. Maya, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is not the first time that we've had Maya on, and it's not the first time that I've butchered her last name. Um, but regardless, welcome, Aaron, Maya, Jennifer. Um, welcome to this discussion on the Supreme Court. Yes, many of you um, know Aaron and Maya. Aaron Hawley is an appellate lawyer and an IWLC senior fellow. She's a former associate professor of law at the University of Missouri and a former clerk to Chief Justice John Roberts. Maya is special counsel for external affairs with Liberty, and she is an expert in voting rights, election administration, political law, and redistricting. Um, and speaking of political law and redistricting, let's jump right in, Maya, with you and talk about some of the election cases that are before the court this term. Um, there are two. Merrill versus Milligan deals with majority minority districts um, and Moore versus Harper, uh, which will be heard in a few weeks, I believe, um, asks, you know, sort of a more obscure question about what role state courts um, and state constitutions play in the redistricting process. So let's start with Merrill. And um, maybe you could just explain that a little bit and explain, you know, does the Voting Rights Act require the state to consider race or does it require a race-neutral approach when it comes to redistricting and drawing these maps? Well, um, redistricting has been so litigated, um, so many lawsuits, and that's because the Voting Rights Act is confusing. And um, the way the courts have interpreted it have really caused that confusion. So we, we look at the Voting Rights Act, and it stems from the authority to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments and Equal Protection Clause and non-discrimination against um, on the basis of race, color and past enslavement. But that's a race neutral um, uh, uh, way of interpreting um, and applying the law. But the courts have taken, um, uh, you know, applying race as a predominant factor. And that, that starts to get confusion. Um, when Congress um, you know, revised the Voting Rights Act, um, they, they put in language that is confusing um, because they have opportunity to elect candidates of uh, choice. And so that, that seems to, some interpret that as equal opportunity, access to the polls, and you know, minorities voting in turnout. Um, so that, that's a great success of the Voting Rights Act. But then we have another provision that elect candidates of choice. And so that's just the results of elections. And so, you know, uh, a lot of folks have been using that um, instead of descriptive. You have a choice to elect what, whomever you want. People are guessing who actually will be elected and looking at those results and saying, hey, wait, there's a race of the candidate. And if I elect a person of the same race as me, that's choosing 
um, and making a decision based on race, um, that would be a, um, a, a what the Voting Rights Act says. So, so in, this, in this particular case, um, the state of Alabama drew their maps, at, drew their map, and one of the districts um, is majority African American, and I believe that's the same as it was in the last election cycle, with one district being majority minority. Um, and the federal courts essentially said, no, that's not good enough. You need two districts that are primarily majority minority. Why is that incorrect or correct in your opinion? Well, we look at Alabama and those map makers are using race neutral criteria, you know, uh, not those strange shapes. But the, you know, they went through tremendous litigation, even though they went through the legislative process and reviewed the maps and even turned down maps that would have, you know, canceled out, destroyed that majority minority district completely. But then saying they didn't go far enough um, as a policy matter, as a, you know, redistricting uh, political decision, they should have done more to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Um, because the, the, and they keep talking about the media, because we have an increased minority population, we're entitled to an extra minority district. And if you look at the actual text of the Voting Rights Act, Congress never said that. If the population increases, you're not guaranteed to a percentage of the districts that equal that percentage of the electorate. So the court will um, be looking at that and seeing, hey, wait, um, that this is a textualist court looking at the Voting Rights Act. What does it say and what do advocates want it to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that, you know, well, I'm hopeful that this court will say that that people who are drawing legislative maps need to behave in a race neutral fashion. The Voting Rights Act does not give particular groups in the population the right to have members of their ethnic groups represent them in Congress. And, you know, just as like, you know, I would vote for a man or, or, or a black person or a, an Asian. I mean, I don't have to have somebody who looks like me representing me. I my concern is with their policies and their qualifications for office. And and that's what we should be electing people on the basis of, not the color of their skin. Now, now a district that's all or primarily African-American may end up electing an African-American to represent them, and that's fine. But there's no guarantee that that's who they will elect. And sort of the assumption of the activists in this case is that is that they always excuse me, that they always will, which which seems a little odd to me. But let's switch gears for a minute and just talk about the, the second um, case, Moore versus Harper. In that case, the, um, the state legislature drew a map and the state courts threw it out on the grounds um, that it, the map conflicted with the state constitution. Uh, the Supreme Court has previously held that partisan gerrymandering does not offend the U.S. Constitution. What's going on in this case? Well, uh, what it is about is actually what does the election clause of the U.S. Constitution set mean? And, uh, you know, over the course of time through advocates, the role of state legislatures has really decreased. And they're the closest to the people. They have accountability and they get elected. And they, you know, uh, prior to a, a lot of changes in the redistricting process, 
really drew those maps. They, they know where their districts are, where the constituents are, how the local lines are drawn. And now there's been a lot of um, efforts by activists to instead get judges to draw those maps and to claim um, that it's partisan gerrymandering. But the last term, the, the Supreme Court said, well, this is a political issue. We're judges. We're not qualified. We shouldn't get involved in these decisions um, because, you know, these cases are coming. They're very politicized. And, you know, this is not something one person, one judge, particularly if the judge is unelected, should be doing. Um, it just increases the politicization of the judiciary. And remember, too, there's a lot of forum shopping. You search for a judge who aligns with a particular party. Um, in a lot of states, actually, they run under parties. They have judicial elections. So this is completely taken out of the voice of the people through their elected representatives, the redistricting, drawing the maps, um, and who represents them in, in who is their community that's sent to the U.S. Congress as well as to their state houses. Yeah, this is this has always been, um, you know, one of those things that's that's frustrated. Uh, you know, anyone can look at the map, like the congressional maps. Um, you know, there's there's in California, there's the strip of shame. <laughs> Something is known as the strip of shame that like carves its way like a snake through. Um, but there doesn't seem to be like an. Uh, I mean, if if the court is as you say textualist, and we hope it is, um, then looking at, I mean this is sort of trying to take politics out of politics. Um, and you're entirely, I, I've, learned, I've, I've learned my lesson on this one as a voter and it'd be surprising if, if the Supreme court um, reversed its, its formal conclusion that in fact, there is no way to like neutrally administratively perfectly balanced, draw these kinds of districts. It's inherently a political question. And as you say, it should be left then to those who are closest and elected by the people. Yeah, redistricting, um, you're, you're just fooling yourself if you think that it is not political, um, because these are, and there's often a recognized, um, you know, advantage to having a, an incumbent, uh, particularly as they have seniority. And that's a recognized non-racial criteria that has been used for ages. You definitely want someone representing you in Washington who's Speaker of the House or Majority Leader. So that, that's something that the people, regardless of where they stand, they, they want their voice out there. And it's taken away to, uh, to, by great litigators to take this out of them. And then even some um, courts have not allowed the state legislature to even have a voice in those cases, saying, hey, wait, a, 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 you know, your state lawyer um, attorney general should be defending your map. But then they go against it. So they have no way to defend the map that the people elected them to to enforce. So we're, we're taking things um, uh, in redistricting and we're just gonna be perpetually in redistricting. And we need those maps. Those elections are coming up. Yeah, I think, I think on that note, uh, maybe we'll turn to the next set of cases here. The Supreme Court heard oral argument last week in a couple of cases that deal with discrimination in college admissions. So you have students for fair admissions suing Harvard um, and the University of North Carolina, and it's alleging that there are discriminatory, racially discriminatory policies um, in admission. Erin, can you give us kind of the, the, the download on that case so we can discuss it? Sure, absolutely. So there are two, there's a pair of cases at the Supreme Court um, as you said, involving both UNC and Harvard, uh, incidentally, the oldest public and private universities in our country. 
uh, very prestigious, uh, very good universities, uh, and universities that a lot of folks would like to go to. Uh, but the problem is that in their admissions process, when you drill down, Harvard has a plus factor for race. You check a box um, and certain races get plus factors. The plaintiffs in that case allege that because admissions are a zero-sum game, there are only so many students that can be admitted that that, that plus factor actually results in discrimination against other groups, uh, most notably Asian Americans. Uh, if you look at the record uh, in the Harvard case, uh, what you see uh, is that Asian Americans actually score lower on things like likability uh, than other applicants. Um, and the plaintiffs suggest that this is a way uh, of limiting the number uh, of Asian Americans. Um, and in fact, you can go all the way back sort of to the, the genesis of, of this Harvard admission system. Uh, and it was actually a way of limiting Jewish students at Harvard. Uh, so you, you've got this plus factor. Uh, plaintiffs say it's a zero-sum game. Uh, they look back to the dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, and they say uh, Plessy, uh, you know, was wrong. Uh, obviously, uh, Brown rectified that, uh, and the the Constitution is colorblind, and we should not be in this sort of business of divvying up students uh, by race. And, and one thing that's sort of uh, interesting in the case as well. Um, is, is a case called Grutter. And what plaintiffs say about Grutter is that Grutter uh, was wrong under Brown. Grutter does allow universities to use racial preferences. But even under that case, Grutter said two important things. Grutter said, first, you have to look at race-neutral alternatives. Uh, it's not clear in either of these cases that UNC or Harvard actually did that. Um, and second, uh, Justice O'Connor noted that this, you know, dividing us by race uh, is inherently divisive uh, and something that's dangerous in her words. So she set sort of a sunset of being 25 years. Well, those defending University of North Carolina and Harvard had had no way of saying, you know, whether this will ever end. They, they were not committed to the 25 year window uh, and really couldn't assure the justices that, that this sort of dividing up by race would, would ever sort of sunset. So I think those are some of the problems and arguments raised by plaintiffs here. Yeah, and and just to underscore um, something you said, Aaron. I mean, this is this is really the only situation. There's a couple things with uh, tribal lands and and um, and American Indians, but this is the only sort of mainstream usage where the the, the federal constitution and our courts approve um, the use of race in this kind of limited like. Uh, scratch your left ear with your right hand kind of way, right? Um, and with this 25-year, so clearly sort of uncomfortably approved, but yes, this is the only approved um, use of race where even uh, government institutions are, are using are using race, um, not just in the university context, but this general sort of affirmative action type context. There, there are also programs for housing or for, for business contracts and stuff like that. Um, but now we're, we're going to have this this uh, this out of the Supreme Court, not quite at the 25 year mark, as we were discussing off air just before this. We've got a few more years to go on that time clock. Um, but as you say, no, no sort of plans and admission departments to, to put this to bed and really a defense of this. Um, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about this case and the, this whole line of cases is that the Supreme Court has previously said that that diversity can be a compelling educational interest that justifies 
um, you know, the use of race and the, the division of people along racial lines. Well, what does diversity mean? And, and you know, it means means all things to all people or different things to different people, right? And that's one question that Justice Clarence Thomas raised at oral argument is that these schools have, have been defending their policies on the basis of diversity. The court in the past has said, okay, you can use diversity as a compelling interest, but but what they're really doing is not looking at people individually to see what type of um, diversity the individual brings to the mix. Are, do they bring intellectual diversity? Do they bring geographical diversity? That is something that schools consider quite a bit. But what do they mean when they say racial diversity? And what's interesting is that only certain boxes on these applications, there are only boxes for certain categories. Other categories get left out completely. Um, and some ethnic groups are all lumped together in one category that seems not to make a lot of sense. So you have the Asian category, which includes everyone from Japan to presumably Afghanistan. Um, and we have a clip of Justice Alito sort of Get, trying to get the attorneys uh, to to address that question that we'll listen to now. I'd like your response to the argument that these racial categories are so broad that any use of them is arbitrary and therefore unconstitutional. So what would you say to, for example, a, uh, a student uh, whose family came from Afghanistan and uh, doesn't get in because uh, the student doesn't get the plus factor that the student would get if the student's family had come from someplace else. So you would say to the student, well, we don't, we don't need you to contribute to a diversity of views at our school because we already have enough Asians. We have a lot of students whose families came from China uh, or other Asian countries. And the student says, well, you don't have anybody like me. I'm from Afghanistan. What, what, what similarity does uh, a family background of a person from Afghanistan have with somebody whose family's background is in, let's say, Japan? Yeah, I thought it was a really good question. And then you have, on top of that, Justice Kavanaugh sort of following up, pointing out the absurdity of the fact that people who are from Middle Eastern countries don't have any box checks. So, you know, if you're if you're a Hispanic from Argentina, you can check a box, even you know, if you're white. But if you are a dark skinned person from the Middle East, you have no box to check, which seems to not make sense, at least in terms of what these universities claim they're trying to achieve. So here's Justice Kavanaugh. Applicants from Middle Eastern countries classified from Jordan, Iraq, Iran, uh, Egypt, and the like. My understanding is that uh, just like uh, other situations uh, where they might not fit within the particular boxes on the common application, that we rely on self-reporting and we would ask, uh, you know, they can volunteer uh, they, their particular country of origin. But if they honestly check one of the boxes, which one are they supposed to check? I, I don't, do not know the answer to that question. Uh, what I can say is that if a 
person from Middle Eastern country self-discloses, self-discloses discloses, uh, their country of origin, it would be considered in the same way that we consider uh, any box that matches, uh, you know, one of the boxes that's available in the common application, which is it would be an individualized holistic analysis. And I can genuinely say that uh, there would be a similar positive analysis in terms of the contribution that a student like that would contribute. And, and we do track, uh, in particular, uh, again, uh, after the admissions process, uh, re religion and, and country of origin and that sort of thing. Thank you. But of course, it's not given the same boost as, as the ethnic categories that are on the application. We know this, and we know this because Harvard in particular has almost the exact same proportion of African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians, and whites every year. So what the, what the record shows in that case is that while there's some degree of difference, the percentages are almost always basically the same, which tells us that they're quotas, right? If they were actually holistic determinations, you would have years where, you know, some years where, where the number of Asians skyrocketed, some years where the number of Asians went down, and some years where, you know, there were more Hispanics than African-Americans and vice versa. And, and it would not look the same from year to year. But but they're almost exactly the same from year to year, which tells us that it's a pretty hard and fast quota. Yeah, it's dangerous. Um, and, and something that Asian Americans in this country have so fought over years and years. And, you know, Japanese were excluded, you know, weren't even allowed in this country. And, you know, they, they're able to be in this country and they seek to go to these schools based on their merit, how hard they worked and their ability to achieve there. And if we're going away from merit, away from the ability to come from anywhere in the world and come to and get the education of the, you know, the top um, universities, that's taking civil rights backwards. Yeah. And then there's the, the thing that these justices were drilling down on, which is the arbitrariness of these categories um, mm -hmm. in, in relation to the stated goal. Right. Um, always in these cases, you're looking about at uh, what the state is doing for its permissible interests. Right. And looking for a fit between those two things. And obviously, there are different levels of scrutiny to decide how close those, that fit has to be. Um, but here it really seems like uh, the justices were questioning the fit between because these categories are so arbitrary. Um, there's a great book by Mike Gonzalez uh, on this as well. And I know, Jennifer, you, you have um, another recommendation to just the history of these categories um, is really political. That we, this country kind of started out that the racial categories in this country really were defined by the white black binary. And that is that is America's you know sort of history um, with with racial questions, even though we have been diverse from the beginning and there have been people from all different countries or at least many different countries um, for, for centuries in the United States. Um, but these categories really came about starting in the 1960s as a way that they're political categories, right? Um, as Jennifer pointed out, there's no real uh, reason why somebody from Argentina has like a, a ton in common with somebody or especially actually here's, here's an even stranger one, right? Somebody from Brazil uh, who speaks Portuguese, <laughs> <laughs> um, might have uh, something in common with, say, like Cubans in Cuba or Mexicans, right? Um, there's no particular diverse experience that is being brought uh, by people with a variety of these ethnic backgrounds. And 
Um, yeah, if, you're, if you're interested in sort of the history of these categories, David Bernstein at George Mason Law School just came out with a book called Classified um, that just explains how these categories developed, um, why they developed the way they did, who developed them um, within the federal government and how they're used today. Uh, it's very interesting, no matter you know what your view on this issue is, to at least try to get your mind around what are these categories, who fits into them and, and, and who doesn't, who's excluded from them. Well, and I just add one more thing. Uh, there is an ongoing effort to create a MENA category, right? Middle Eastern and North African category. Um, and, and there is no limitation to the political movements to create these categories as long as they come with concrete benefits, right? There is a real incentive to create the AAPI uh, label. There's a real incentive to create the MENA label um, because it comes currently with with these benefits um, in admissions and in other government programs. And so we're not really going to get rid of classifying people as long as, as the federal government is essentially discriminating on the basis of those classifications. And I think that really brings to light Justice Thomas's point that, you know, regardless of the history of these sort of classifications and their political nature, anytime you divide up Americans on the basis of race, uh, Justice Thomas says that's always demeaning and divisive. Um, so not, not really something we want to be promoting um, in universities or elsewhere. Yeah, on, on, on that note, let's turn to... Um, Back to you, Aaron. Could you you tell us a little bit about there? There are some some uh, big tech cases on on the docket. There's uh, some Section 230 cases. I know uh, sort of the the position of big tech companies um, in in the the world of of um, sort of the public square is very much a debate in American society right now. Um, what is the court going to be looking at? What are the cases the court is going to be looking at with with that in mind? Sure. So there's two cases the court will be looking at um, this probably early spring. Um, and in these cases, you've got the interesting question of what Section 230 means textually. So what Section 230 does is it limits liability. It's a liability shield for Internet platforms. Uh, it was passed in 1996, sort of at the dawn of the Internet age, when we didn't really know much about what the Internet was going to look like or what these big tech companies were going to look like. And what it says is that when you post someone's content, if you are a platform and you allow anyone to post on Facebook, for example, you allow anyone to post on Yelp, then that company, Facebook, is not liable for a defamation suit. Um, if you know if someone on Facebook posts a uh, post about me that's defamatory, I can sue that person. But under Section 230, I can't sue Facebook because they're merely posting that content and not under the common law definition operating as a publisher. Uh, so what's the issue in these cases, however, is that the lower courts have fantastically expanded the definition of, of liability under, or liability shield, I should say, under Section 230. And how YouTube and other platforms operate is they not only allow individuals to post content, they not only moderate such content, um, which is questionable under Section 230, but they also affirmatively promote content. So in these cases, you have two victims of terrorism, uh, one of Hamas and one of ISIS, uh, and plaintiff family members allege that YouTube and Twitter by recommending certain violent videos uh, based on previous user sort of data that they promoted these terrorist ideologies um, and resulted in the death uh, of two individuals. Um, lots more Google 
people were killed, but that these two families are suing on the grounds uh, that Twitter and YouTube were liable for basically promoting terrorism. Uh, the lawsuits are the very beginning stages, however, because what the lower courts held is that Section 230 cuts off liability entirely, that the tech companies are shielded not only for hosting content and letting people up, put it up there, not only for taking down or moderating content, but also for affirmatively recommending content. And so that's what the court's going to be deciding. Uh, is it the case uh, that affirmatively promoting content uh, is shielded uh, under Section 230? And I think that'll be a tough view on the statutory text, uh, but we will see. So essentially, whether uh, the algorithm is the new opinion page of the New York Times, which exactly. is a really interesting question, I think. Exactly. And there's all sorts of studies um, by the New York Times and others showing how these algorithms actually promote more extreme content. Um, so if you're interested in one subject, uh, the algorithm will continue to promote that sort of activity or the sorts of posts, um, but on a more extreme basis. Those can lead individuals down rabbit holes, uh, as plaintiffs allege, uh, in the ISIS uh, situation. And I think, it, you know, the, the tech companies are, you know, originally we thought they were just like utility companies. They're just providing, you know, electricity without any decisions made on, you know, what type of electricity, you know, or what there wasn't content in it. But they're more like television companies. You know, they can censor, they can market. And that gives them, uh, you know, particularly because the big temp tech companies dominate the field, they have a lot of power. And they have no responsibility and accountability um, based on this shield. Well, speaking of uh, domination in a market, uh, let's switch gears <laughs> to uh, this next case, um, 303 Creative, which uh, we'll get to it in a minute, but, but involves the domination of the market of a particular type of wedding website. Um, Maya, can you, can you just uh, lay out that case for us really quick? Oh, you're, you're muted, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> 303 Creative is another uh, free speech type of case where there were, was a designer who had a freedom of conscience and didn't want to uh, create a sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, in support of a particular message. And that related to um, same-sex marriage and uh, sexual orientation. And so it, do you have a free speech, a freedom of a religion, um, right to say, I, I'm going to abstain from that. You know, this is my creative artistic expression. And this is, you know, through public accommodation laws and through different types of laws, um, we're starting to say, you know, to certain people with um, sincerely held beliefs, you have to say certain things. Um, you can't use your art um, in a certain way. Um, uh, you have to use your art in a certain way. And, uh, you know, Art is so individualized, is so unique. Um, how can you tell um, someone you have to create this website? You have to bake this cake, as we saw with Master Cake, um, cake Shop. And it's, it's targeting certain um, beliefs. And the government shouldn't be policing and saying, this, this, uh, this content is okay. This content is not. Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people who, you know, aren't court watchers or lawyers are hearing about this case and saying, wait a minute, we've seen this movie before, right? Didn't, didn't, wasn't there something about a baker and a wedding cake and now it's a website and didn't, didn't the court already address this issue? 
Um, Aaron, I know you've had some involvement with this case. Can you just explain um, how the legal issues in this case differ from those that were pr presented in Masterpiece Cake Shop? Sure, and just as sort of a disclaimer, um, I've flown at the council in 303 Creative, um, but the issues do differ from Masterpiece in a couple of ways. Uh, and the first one being that the speech created by Ms. Smith by 303 Creative is unquestionably pure speech. The court has found that words and pictures and those sorts of things are in fact speech. Uh, one of the main questions in Masterpiece was, you know, is it is a cake expression? Um, you know, what does it have to be to be expression? Is its purpose primarily to be eaten? Or in the case of a wedding cake, is it is it art? Um, and Justice Thomas was, was very firm on this, that it's absolutely art. Um, but, but that was one of the, the heated questions in that case. Uh, here, uh, on the other hand, you have pure speech. And you also have uh, a lot of stipulations. Uh, Colorado was sort of so certain of its case uh, that it made a lot of stipulations below. And one of those was to acknowledge that Ms. Smith serves all clients. So she currently has LGBT clients um, and she's happy to provide them with custom websites. But what she cannot do is speak certain messages that violate her beliefs. So well, this just to be clear, she, she, she would make a website for, for a gay client who wants to promote his tech business, exactly. but, but not for the same client who wants to have a wedding website. Exactly. So her argument is that you can reconcile these sort of public accommodation laws that typically regulate conduct and service and those sorts of things. Um, but what you can't do is to make, as Maya said, someone speak contrary to their conscience, uh, that that's sort of a core First Amendment violation that the Supreme Court has never endorsed. And in Masterpiece, the, the court's ultimate ruling had more to do with um, freedom of religion than freedom of speech, although Justice Thomas wrote wrote an opinion that focused on the speech piece, but the holding itself really didn't address speech, if I'm remembering correctly. It was more about the fact that, um, well, you tell us. It was more, I think it was more about religion. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And what the court did um, in, in Masterpiece, I think it was a 7-2 decision, pretty sure. Um, so so vast majority of the court was really concerned by the process in Colorado. And the Colorado Commission had demonstrated overt hostility to, in that case, Jack Phillips' religious beliefs. Um, they had compared him uh, to, to really bad people throughout history. Um, they denigrated his religious beliefs. And so the court said, when you have a process, uh, a legal process, you cannot discriminate uh, against religious beliefs. You cannot show hostility to religious beliefs. That violates the free exercise clause. So they went, uh, sort of decided it on, on religious hostility grounds rather than on free speech grounds. And even the, some of the more uh, liberal justices saw that. That discrimination by the government actors in Colorado and 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 therefore held that their actions were unconstitutional. Absolutely. Well, there was a concurrence to uh, in that case, and uh, it really pointed out that um, if you just follow the procedures and you don't say anything um, in, in passing these public accommodation laws, you could just do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so there's this invidious discrimination against these certain individuals with these beliefs, um, but they're, they're just avoiding and uh, finding a loophole in Masterpiece um, piece Cake Shop. And this has implications for uh, cases all across. There's a lot more bakers. Um, I'll give a disclaimer. Uh, First Liberty filed an amicus in support of uh, 303 Creative because, you know, there, there are 
are cases in the pipeline um, still asking this question um, because Master Key, Peace Cave Shop just dealt with targeting where that was the process. But what about these, you know, this conflict where you have free speech um, in every other context except for um, LGBT issues, it seems. Right. So if you, if you take it out of the, um, you know, gay marriage context and out of the religion context, I mean, imagine if, if you know, you wanted to bake a cake that said Donald Trump in 2024 and the baker, you know, is a committed Democrat and doesn't want to put Trump's name on a cake. It, it would basically it would essentially present the same conundrum. Right. Do our can government force this person to essentially create a political banner on a piece of artwork if that, you know, violates what that person believes? It, not just what yeah. they, believe, they don't want to say that they don't want to speak those words. Well, what, one of the stipulations that Aaron was referring to is um, in, in the the appellate uh, I think it's a 10th circuit in Colorado, right? Um, so in the 10th circuit case, they adopted reasoning um, because uh, because this case is sort of so clear that it is speech. One of the things they've they're they're what they're arguing and, and the um, council is arguing against 303 um, creative is saying, yes, this is speech. Yes, we're, we're litigating this under strict scrutiny, but it, this is the, the this is the least restrictive means. Um, we have to abridge this person's speech because she is a monopoly on her particular type of wedding website, and therefore the government has the ability to tell her exactly what she can and cannot say and what messages she can and cannot publish. Um, am I interpreting that correctly? Because that seems kind of insane we were just talking about how you know maybe google is not a monopoly right but this one <laughs> woman who's making websites for weddings uh, is, is is somehow a monopoly because she makes a particular kind of art uh, absolutely and the, the tenth circuit's opinions i think really went off the rails and they, they really did get about two-thirds of it correct um they said you know Lori is clearly speaking through her websites uh, and they said that the, you know, Cotta, the, the Colorado law, the public accommodation law issue uh, clearly compels her to speak. If she chooses to speak about opposite sex weddings, she also has to speak under Colorado's law about same sex weddings, despite her sincere religious beliefs. So it's speech and it's compelled. Uh, but then Colorado went on, just as you said, and said, or the circuit and said, well, we think there's a compelling interest here and it's nearly tailored because Lori's websites are unique. Um, and that means uh, that all artists um, really have no First Amendment rights because the state can force you uh, to say anything contrary to your beliefs based on the idea that you yourself are a monopoly because you create unique products. So a mom on Etsy with a side hustle, a Democratic speech writer uh, could be forced to write a Republican speech. There really is no limit uh, within these political categories to, to what the government can force you to speak. And we wouldn't need a First Amendment, um, right, if there wasn't speech that people disagreed with. So, you know, having government, you know, police and say what's okay to say and what's okay to um, not say is, a, you know, a basic right that, you know, our First Amendment has always protected. Yeah, but and before we wrap up, we have one more uh, sort of topic. Um, now we're going to talk about Sackett against EPA. Uh, we're going to turn to you, Erin, because this is, this is a case about the scope of 
agencies and what agencies can and can't do. Now, this is like a, maybe you can tell some of the, the winding history of this case. I feel really bad for this guy. He's essentially been litigating this for, you know, <laughs> since <laughs> before 2006. Um, so he has been doing this for years. Uh, he's, he's been going on a one-man mission against uh, some absurd things that the EPA has done. So can you kind of lay out the case and tell us why it's important? Uh, absolutely. Well, as you described, in 2004, Mark and Chantel Sackett, they're just an ordinary couple. They purchased a plot of land, a two-thirds acre lot near Priest Lake, Idaho, and they started to build their dream homes or their retirement home. Um, but yet, uh, the EPA stepped in and said, wait a minute. I think, or, or we think, the EPA thinks uh, that your area, your lot here that you purchased is a wetland. And the way that the EPA got to this determination uh, is really pretty aggressive. So the uh, land purchased by the Sackett um, is separated from Priest Lake. It's not close, uh, or, or it's not connected, I, I should say. It's not connected. Um, and what the EPA said uh, was that, let me get this correct. Um, so Priest Lake uh, is a navigable water, which matters under the statute. It connects to a non-navigable creek, connects to a non-navigable man-made ditch, which connects to wetlands. And so this begs the question of, you know, well, what among this sort of variety of connections of wetlands that's separated by a, I think, 30-foot road um, gives the EPA jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act? Uh, and the Clean Water Act defines the EPA's jurisdiction as being navigable waters which is defined as a water of the United States. Uh, when the Clean Water Act was passed, that was typically understood to be waters which are navigable in fact, capable of moving goods by boat, or could be made navigable. But through a series of Supreme Court decisions, a series of EPA administrative rulemakings, uh, we now get the results where, as in the Sackett's case, you can be connected by a non-navigable creek, a non-navigable man-made ditch, which connects to wetlands, which in combination with other wetlands might have an effect uh, on a water of the United States or navigable water. So really attenuated. Uh, and we saw the justices sort of um, struggling with, you know, what does the tech mean, water of the United States, uh, and how can we finally rein in some of the, the EPA's assertion of jurisdiction, not only over this couple, um, but as Justice Spirit, Justice Thomas pointed out, they grew up in New Orleans and Georgia, places where water was just below the surface. Uh, the EPA's interpretation might mean that, that nearly every homeowner in New Orleans, Georgia, needs a permit from the EPA, and how, how does that square uh, with the text of the statute. So expecting the court to cut back on jurisdiction, um, how much uh, we will see. Interesting that the justices brought in, you know, their personal experiences in terms of where they grew up. And and, and that's the type of real diversity, right? When, I was, was going to make that same joke. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about, you know, whether it's picking justices for a court or, or picking students to make up a class, you do want a diversity of experiences and viewpoints because it does inform the way people think about these things. Um, it helps people understand issues better and, and fascinating that their personal experiences were, were brought to bear on this you know, sort of obscure administrative law topic. But it has implications, you know, uh, for the everyday person um, and the growth of the administrative state is causing all these problems. How, how did the EPA think this statute gave them so much power? And it affects, you know, just, you know, um, 
individuals on the street that never thought the government would come in and say, you know, make this requirement and, you know, basic life. Um, you know, as a recovering bureaucrat, I was baffled how much power um, these individuals have who are unelected. Yeah, this is obviously a, a larger, larger question about um, how much deference the court is going to give to essentially power grabs by agencies, because uh, what, what, what was the Ronald Reagan quote like, uh, you know, government there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. I mean, that's true with regard to agencies. They're always going to be looking to expand their scope, to expand their reason for existence. And um, sometimes, like in this case, they end up fundamentally harassing people for 15 years um, or more based on on very, very attenuated um, interpretation, like after interpretation of a text to the point where you get completely far away from any kind of legitimate text that was passed by the people's representatives in Congress and, and very much into what you just said, Maya, where it's just rule by bureaucrat. Well, and on that note, <laughs> um, but no, seriously, thank you ladies for joining us to talk about some of these cases on the court's docket. Um, as the court moves through the term, maybe we can get together and do it again, because any one of these issues could have commanded, you know, a full hour of, of your expertise. So we appreciate you coming on to talk about this. And um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, Denise. Thank you. At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can listen to At the Bar as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, we hope you'll join us again in a few weeks for another spirited conversation, perhaps about some of these cases and more um, of what's going to be hashed out in the Supreme Court, but generally issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers. <laughs> <laughs>